Life insurance companies have always had to optimize processes for risk assessment. In the past, the process included physicians, but over time, physicians got replaced by a more cost-effective method. But assessing an applicant's risk for suicide remained a tricky area, at least until the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, came along. I'm Dr. Ken Flagel, Senior Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with the author of a Medicine and Society article published in CMAJ. The article is titled, Suicide Risk, Automated Underwriting versus Medical Experts. Here to tell us about his article is Dr. Dorian Deschauer. He is a psychiatrist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He is also an associate editor for CMAJ, but was not involved in the decision-making process for this article. Welcome, Dr. Deschauer. Thank you, Dr. Flagel. I would just like to say how grateful I am for the opportunity to do this uh, CMAJ podcast with you. Dr. Deschauer, maybe we could start by asking you, how old is life insurance anyway? Good question. It started in North America. Life insurance was available for purchase in the 1830s and 1840s. And I believe that by around 1870, about 700,000 North Americans already had life insurance policies of some kind. In the early 20th century, insurance companies relied on physicians called medical directors to help assess risk. How did doctors fit into the insurance industry? I expect that the topic of risk is high on most people's minds when you think of insurance companies. And I, I think it's worth taking a minute or two to step back to the early days where the new market of emerging North American life insurance companies began. This was a time when the concept of buying life insurance was really novel. While insurance in general started much earlier with goods and merchandise being shipped, life insurance in North America was a kind of a futures exchange that evolved coincidentally with, with larger future markets for commodities in the mid-19th century. So what we're talking about is the ability to sell your future risk of death to a third party for a price. And in exchange, the consumer or the buyer of insurance would receive an agreement for financial support to their heirs upon their death. Insurance companies, in turn, needed some way to quantify each customer's risk of death. So mortality statistics became a key part of the insurance market. Now, doctors came into this story as a way of bridging aggregate statistics with individual customers. Over the next century, doctors could be seen playing a major role in the creation of risk categories, and these risk categories then would go on to have implications for the cost of life insurance. That is, risk was not just something out there to be calculated, as we can do today. In the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, risks needed to be manufactured, and medical directors were key to this process. And actually, speaking of change, I, it just reminded me that the, even the term calculator, that we think of, of calculator and we just assume it's something that fits in our pockets. But actually, in the late 1800s, calculator was a job description. It was actually what somebody did. And it was typically women 
Um, but nonetheless, it was a job description unto itself. So as you've just intuited to me, insurance companies have the same interest in avoiding death as the person who will go through the process, but they have different reasons for doing it. Exactly. Actually, the Association of Life Insurance Medical Directors of America, ALIMDA for short, was an influential group of doctors employed by life insurance companies who looked at the existing evidence, calculated risks, and came together for annual meetings for what sounded like lively discussions and debates. ALIMDA existed from 1889 to 1991. Now, it's worth keeping in mind that the U.S. federal government in the early 20th century was really concerned about the formation of monopolies, and insurance companies were a prime example. Some historians have proposed that Alimda helped insurance companies fashion themselves as providing medical research toward a public good. It sort of reminds me of today's debates over the collection of health data by tech companies. These problems have been around a long time. Now, getting back to Alimda, one of its goals was to pool proprietary data across companies to come up with more stable mortality estimates. Later on, in the mid-20th century, as medical technology advanced, Alimda took on a secondary task, which was to recalibrate mortality tables, taking into account the effects of new health technologies. Let's, I just want to look back at their first big collaboration. Um, in the early 1900s, Alimda conducted a large-scale intercompany research project called the BUILD study. By BUILD, they were talking about the ratio of height to weight. The first BUILD study looked at data on roughly a million people, 700,000 men and 300,000 women. This reflects the distribution of sales back then, but it also gives us a sense of how popular life insurance was as a way of managing personal risk and even as a savings vehicle at the turn of the 20th century. Customers were, of course, predominantly men, since they were seen as family breadwinners. And by the way, um, the BUILD study influenced medical practice because doctors were subsequently expected to have scales and blood pressure cuffs in their offices in order to fill out insurance forms. Can you tell us a little more about the process of risk assessment in the early 1900s? Sure. Uh, insurance salesmen would put together the necessary information, including measurements made by doctors. Once a form was filled out, it was mailed to company headquarters. And there were a lot of companies back then, lots of small ones, though there, was three, there were three massive ones. In 1900, we're talking about Mutual Life of New York, New York Life, and equitable assurance. Once at the head office, forms were transcribed by clerks onto data cards, and each company had its own method for risk stratification, though the bill study began a process of standardization. Some applications were, were classified as standard risk to be quickly approved for sale at a standard price. Others were deemed higher risk, and they came under special scrutiny by medical directors. Medical directors were in charge of a category called substandard insurance, which basically meant insurance sold at an increased price to compensate companies for an increased mortality risk. Medical directors prided themselves on their personal judgment. For large policies, 
They could authorize extensive investigations, hiring consultants and even private investigators to confirm information about applicants. Now, medical directors have always been concerned with the problem of anti-selection. Basically, classic markets operate on the assumption that buyers and sellers have equal access to information about stuff that's being bought or sold. Anti-selection refers to the effects of asymmetrical knowledge. So, for example, consumers might be more likely to buy life insurance when they had a gut feeling that something was wrong with their health. But they might not share this concern when filling out an application. So companies were constantly battling the problem of anti-selection. They used other checks and balances uh, that were not really standardized. And so you can see uh, life insurance as a very fluid landscape in the early 1900s. There was a lot more leeway for the personal judgment of medical directors at that point. Another power group in the industry were actuaries, and they were well aware that a person's economic standing alone had a lot to do with their mortality risk. Employed people tended to live longer. Actuaries used credit reports and postal codes to think about a person's mortality risk, just as they took into consideration race and gender. And just I want to just put forward it, thinking about the insurance industry in the late 1800s, think of it as a massive information gathering machine just beginning. So to give an example of how the insurance industry was viewed in medicine in the late 1800s, a JAMA article published in 1892 said, and I quote, a life insurance company is a sponge. It has a head as its center, grasping arms, which extend to immense distances, agents as suckers, and medicine men as tentacles or feelers. Actuaries and medical directors both had access to a huge central repository of personal information started in 1902 called the Medical Information Bureau. Amazingly, this survived the antitrust movement in the 1920s, and it still exists today. Its website claims membership by 430 insurance companies across America. Once recorded in the Medical Information Bureau, information was permanent. It became increasingly useful in the processing of new insurance applications. Perhaps it's not so difficult to see that once a person was turned down, it was increasingly difficult to be insured by any competing firm. And later on, with this massive data and the enrichment of the processing, we began to get into automated underwriting in the 1960s. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so automated underwriting, I think one way to think about it is almost like um, a counterbalance to the medical director. So you can almost think of these processes as two contrasting ways of, of uh, gathering knowledge. One is, is about standardization. The other is about expert intuition. Um, but medical, the whole job of the medical director was a, a little bit more complicated than that. And I think it's worth considering the bigger picture. So medical directors were expected to go well beyond adjudicating individual applications. They were expected to think as businessmen. Actually, I found that word a lot used in the in the uh, archives of Olimda. And uh, so thinking as a businessman meant figuring out new ways for companies to navigate the field of substandard insurance. 
uh, which meant they were wading into riskier and higher priced insurance policies. So what we're seeing is that the medical directors were expected to have two roles. One, uh, to protect the company's downside, but at the same time, they were expected to help the company expand into new markets. One area of expansion was into a huge market for low-cost insurance to cover basic burial costs. The other market, and I think this is really where the medical directors saw their purpose evolving, this other market had to do with insuring people with medical conditions, some of which were successfully managed with new technologies. Now, there's a spectacular amount of data on this. So specifically, the people we're talking about are, are those who used antihypertensives. And keeping in mind, for example, that hydrochlorothiazide just started to come out in the 1950s. Cholesterol-lowering drugs, diabetes treatments, people who had heart valve replacements, and even those who used drugs for Parkinson's disease. Insurance companies were aware that the ability to control medical conditions was shifting mortality rates, and thus it was creating a market opportunity. Some companies like Metropolitan Life, actually ran programs meant to improve the health of their existing customers and thus reduce their mortality payouts. Medical directors kept up to date with new developments by bringing in lecturers from around the world and also by visiting research institutes. Now, as I mentioned, automated underwriting was a real threat to Alimda, and some directors, quite honestly, saw the writing on the wall as as early as 1960. Um, increasingly, standardization was displacing the personal judgment of directors. Companies were concerned about the cost of experts, both the salaries of medical directors, but also contract consultants. Companies worried that medical directors spent too much time thinking like doctors, that they were creating risk categories for their own sake, and not thinking enough like businessmen. It's interesting to note that automated underwriting was not automated in the sense of machines or computers that we would be tempted to think of it in terms of today. Rather, the term automation here can be seen as differentiating knowledge obtained through cookbook interviews from knowledge obtained through expert judgment. In your paper, you begin to focus more on the issue, special issue raised by mental illness and its attendant risk of suicide. How is the problem of mental illness handled? Okay, well, let's put it into perspective. Uh, between 1952 and 1962, suicide was the fifth highest cause of life insurance payouts for metropolitan life. And that accounted for more than $10 million out of payouts for that company alone. So companies were really keyed into mental health as a risk. If you look at how they assessed, it wasn't as if mental health was written all over a form. So all applications, just imagine the, the company as a big funnel. And all applications came in from peripheral sales centers to head offices. They were screened by clerical staff, like I mentioned before. And from what I can tell... Even in the 50s and 60s, screening methods were not standardized across all companies. Some, some categories did, however, consistently raise red flags. And, and those, from what I can tell, were things like a history of hospitalization for mental illness, a history of a suicide attempt. And these are things that, that doctors would put on forms. Uh, drug or alcohol addiction, 
psychosis or interventions like electroshock therapy or lobotomy. Interesting with lo lobotomy, actually, uh, the, the big fear was, was more that people would, be, would die of the complications of the procedure itself. Anyway, some, some of these applications were, with such flags were, were turned down outright, but borderline calls were moved on to the medical director's desk for more careful assessment. And one of the big questions facing medical directors in the 60s was whether people who used long-term medications to maintain their mental health might be at reduced risk for suicide, sort of analogous to people who used antihypertensives to lower their risk for heart attack or stroke. Now, as I mentioned, Alimda brought in experts on mental health, and Canadians played a role here. For example, the McGill physiologist Hans Selye, who was an expert on cortisol regulation and the stress response, and the psychiatrist Heinz Lehmann, who was among the first people to study the long-term use of psychiatric drugs. Lehmann and others in his generation really thought the value of long-term psychiatric drugs was in a secondary and tertiary prevention of mental illness and in turn of suicide. So you can see the implications for insurance markets and what a dynamic time this was in the assessment of mental health risk. If long-term drugs could deliver on the promise uh, that, was, that they seemed to offer, perhaps suicide risks would eventually go down in North America and companies would try to cash in on this knowledge. So in terms of predicting suicide risk in relation to mental illness, the companies developed models and predictors or variables. What kinds of predictors were selected? Um, good point. I think to me, it seems it's, it's going a bit far to think about multivariate predictive equations for suicide screening in the 50s and 60s. And I, I mean, certainly that's what I was looking for and, and in fact expecting, but that was not what I found. Um, exclusionary clauses had been used for years. Uh, so by analogy for physical problems, exclusionary periods would be quite long. Uh, a diagnosis of gastric cancer, for example, carried an exclusionary period of 10 years. But you can imagine with mental health issues, sweeping exclusionary clauses would lead to massive loss of revenue. By the late 1960s, over 10% of life insurance policies were issued to people with some kind of psychiatric diagnosis. And suicide clauses were often written for five years at that time based on expert judgment. Now, in addition to psychiatric categories, we know that some directors considered race and gender to be important variables. For example, and I quote, colored people who stayed in the South, end quote, were thought to be protected against suicide. If someone of color moved north, some directors thought their risks went up. Women, on the other hand, were generally thought to be protected against suicide across the board by their husbands, since women, it was felt, were not exposed to the stresses of having to make a living. And, and the other thing in, in, the, in the assessment of suicide risk, um, medical directors strongly emphasized the importance of detecting alcoholism using physical exams and liver enzyme tests. But for high cost policies, they went quite a bit beyond this. Uh, they could ask for detailed investigations that might include interviews from janitors, personal assistants, even priests 
to assess an individual's risk. In the early 1950s, the first DSM was published. How did that change the way insurance companies assessed risk? I think about this as a time of recalibration in the industry, perhaps even a turning point. Diagnostic systems, not just the DSM, were promoted by paid consultants to the industry who claimed to see prognostic value in categories like psychoneurosis, psychopathic personalities, and psychosis. Experts like Peter Denker, a psychiatrist from Cornell University, made appearances in Alinda's proceedings. Denker thought the biggest threat to companies was misclassification of what he called hidden psychotics. And Denker claimed the DSM was actually too cumbersome and nonspecific. Using an analysis of a thousand consecutive death claims made to the Equitable Life Insurance Company, he claimed that his methods of screening applications could have reduced payouts due to suicide by 30%. His claim was that the hidden psychotics had been misclassified as psychoneurotics. So coming back to your question about DSM, uh, Denker lumped together several DSM categories into a single category of psychosis. And these included uh, the terms schizophrenia, manic depression, and involutional melancholia. Um, He thought the category of psychoneurosis, on the other hand, was actually a good risk for life insurance. And then at the same time, he warned that psychoneurosis was a poor risk for disability insurance. Denker's 1953 study confirmed the practice of five-year exclusionary periods since the vast majority of suicides in his study occurred within the first five years of issuing life insurance. All to say, reviewing Alimda's proceedings, I think the DSM was influential to the extent that it helped companies sort applicants into their categories of psychosis, psychopathic personality, and psychoneurosis. To an outsider, one might think that once a diagnosis is properly applied to a particular patient, one diagnosis is as good as any other in determining what to do next. Why was mental illness more of a struggle for insurance companies? Okay, this is a question that's got a lot of implications for mental illness and public health more generally, but I'll I'll stick to the insurance case and you'll see Uh, the other ramifications for it as we go. Uh, I think the issue is that medical directors and actuaries place their confidence in very large data sets. And there was one medical director, Richard Singer, uh, who was well known uh, in Alimda for his courses on how to interpret data, incorporating both proprietary and published medical information in his mortality studies. And Actually, as a side note, I've got to say uh, it was amazing to have a chance to go through Richard Singer's notes, uh, which his his family bequeathed to uh, the St. John's University Insurance Library, where anyone can have access to it. It's really incredible. Uh, it's incredible to see how this this man thought about numbers, and he he called himself a number cruncher. Actually, uh, for for risk calculations, Singer's methods helped shape what counted as authoritative knowledge for Olimda. The the bottom line for him was that only studies of a certain size could generate enough confidence to influence business practices. And he had this odd term, it struck me anyway, 
uh, he always talked about this thing called mortality experience. And in, I guess most doctors trained in epidemiology might just look at study size, but he, he wanted more than that. He wanted something called death experience. So for example, for rare diseases, uh, say a case series of 50 patients, he would be looking for five, up to five deaths. He said that would be, that'd be useful for a rare disease. But in general, when he talked about a small study, he talked about a study that described at least 25 deaths. And just to look at what his comfort zone was for saying, okay, I, I really like this data, uh, he, he preferred to see 100 deaths for something like uh, problems of, of hypertension. And that's, I think this, this sort of speaks to the heart at some of the problems insurance companies had with, with um, mental illness. Singer tr mistrusted studies with high dropouts. And if you, and anyone who's looked at psychiatric research will realize that we're talking about studies with relatively small numbers, high dropouts, and relatively short periods of observation. Now, something I mentioned in the paper that stood out to me was a surprising solution to handling suicide risks, and it did not come from the medical directors. It actually came from uh, financial auditors at the John Hancock Company in the late 1960s. John Hancock at that time was an independent entity Right now, of course, it's its own. It was bought by by Manulife. Auditors weren't thinking so much about suicide as a medical problem as a problem of financial liability. So let's look at the John Hancock study, which involved company data from 1968 to 1974. Well. Medical directors and other medical experts were looking for relationships between specific illness categories and suicide. Financial auditors were interested in the general category of payouts related to suicide. So this is actually how many checks were actually written and, and, and sent out. Looking at mortality rates from among 3,400 policies issued to people with psychiatric diagnoses, ranging from psychoneurosis to substance use and psychosis, they analyzed only those payouts that went to relatives. And surprisingly, it turned out that payouts were no greater than they were to people who had no psychiatric diagnosis at all. It turned out that the excess death rates due to suicide in high-risk groups were counterbalanced from a financial point of view by increased rates of defaulting on policies for non-payment. Let's look at another way. Unfortunately, before dying by suicide, customers would tend to default on their policies. And in a weird twist of fate, this meant they were no longer liabilities for the company. Furthermore, 90% of suicides occurred within three years of taking out a policy. So what we can see emerging at this time was a new approach to managing the risk of death by suicide. Uh, in addition to the three-year exclusion period, auditors figured out an efficient cut point for when uh, companies should involve expensive psychiatric consultants in the process of underwriting. And what happened was that after the early 70s, you start seeing in Alimda's uh, proceedings this idea of the jumbo policy. So only the jumbo policy would warrant the cost of expert assessment. And jumbo policies accounted for only 2% of all insurance policies sold. So from our 
so-called modern perspective, what is the judgment? Was this method of assessing risk accurate and effective? That's a great question. In order to address it, I think we have to step back and, and say that insurance companies were, of course, concerned with the bottom line. Therefore, the question for them was not as we might think. It was not whether or not automated underwriting was more accurate in identifying people who were likely to die by suicide than experts. It's more accurate, I think, to consider the question to be, was automated underwriting more cost-effective in the long run? The world was really changing for medical directors. The John Hancock study showed how medical logic and business logic led to very different ways of understanding suicide. In the logic of business, accuracy and effectiveness were defined in terms of the bottom line. What finally happened to the Association of Life Insurance Medical Directors of America? Well, Alimda was in existence for over a century, a long period of time, starting in 1889 and ending in 1991. A declining membership can be seen by the 1980s, in part because of a consolidation of smaller companies and in part because of the rise of automated underwriting. For decades, Alimda fashioned itself as a medical subspecialty. And eventually, in 1983, after decades of being turned down, insurance medicine received recognition as a subspecialty by the American Medical Association. By 1991, Alimda was no longer financially viable, and it decided to merge with the American Academy of Insurance Medicine. So how is mental illness assessed by insurance companies today? Okay, um, I focused my research mostly on the period before 1970. But from what I can tell from interviews with retired life insurance company medical directors, automated underwriting became increasingly sophisticated and it continues to be informed by the principles of the John Hancock study. I think the main take-home point is that still today, for jumbo policies, medical directors and expert consultants will still play a big role and these policies will still, just as they were in the 60s, they will still be priced on a case-by-case -case basis. From your perspective and all the reading you've done around this topic, could you speculate on whether or not the insurance industry has advanced the general field of suicide risk prediction? Um, I could only speculate, um, Dr. Flagel, on that. I, I would have to think that it has become more accurate, actually, for anticipating suicide. Um, but I would always, I would always caution that with keeping in mind that the, that the objectives of understanding suicide risk from a corporate standpoint are profit-driven. And it's not so much from the medical point of view that does look at, at suicide as a devastating human uh, experience. Finally, why did you want to write this article for CMAJ? It's interesting for me to consider this question. Um, as an author, as I've spent many hours as an editor making decisions about whether or not a written piece was right for CMAJ's Medicine and Society, with my editorial hat, I'm looking for articles that help us think differently about things we might take for granted. Here, the issue is the very concept of risk. 
that we should not just take risk for granted as something out there being waiting to be calculated, but rather something that we've come to understand in a certain way because of specific factors existing at particular points in time. Uh, for me, history is about change. I hope, and I think it's true, that every doctor would agree that there is benefit to thinking about how medicine plays a role in changing society and vice versa. I found this story particularly interesting as it connects health to economics, to questions of inclusion and exclusion, and to the way we manage financial uncertainty in a capitalist society. I personally found the role of medical experts interesting, and even more so how their role can be seen to recalibrate over time. Now, the image in the article shows us a limda at its peak. The photo was taken in 1941 in the Grand Waldorf Astoria in New York City. This is now a world away. At the height of World War II, it's a room of 115 medical directors, and from what I can tell, they're all white, mostly middle-aged men. This picture lets us think about how medicine has changed, not only in terms of gender and race, but in broader terms about the authority of medical experts. I personally think this authority is recalibrating as new information technologies come on board. I think we're just now beginning to come to grips with how information technology might shape people's health. And perhaps finally, having worked for years as a physician filling out insurance forms to advocate for my patients, I've had questions about exclusionary periods. Why three years? Why five years? What factors played into giving these particular numbers power? Suicide risk, understood as a physician, is so different from that of insurance companies um, who, in a way, are so radically detached and even indifferent to human suffering. Of course, as we've talked about, we cannot think of insurance companies without considering their interest in the bottom line. And perhaps it's fitting to say that it was insurance companies and insurance companies' medical directors who had a lot to do with putting a dollar figure on a human life. Dr. Deschauer, thank you for doing this. You're very welcome, Dr. Flegel. It's my pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr. Dorian Deschauer psychiatrist, assistant professor at the University of Toronto, and associate editor for CMAJ. To read the Humanities article he authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Ken Flagel, senior editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>